German psychologist and psychoanalyst Eric Erickson coined the term identity crisis, which is basically when someone goes through a period of great uncertainty and confusion over who they are. The idea of finding yourself is connected to identity crisis. Sometimes big changes in life, uh, like aging or health problems or a traumatic event, can lead to internal conflict and confusion about identity. And I think it's normal to ask identity questions and to even feel somewhat restless over them. Uh, they're big questions. The problem develops, though, not in asking who am I questions, but in how we seek to answer those questions. Here's where most people go wrong. They begin with themselves, trying to find something good in themselves to boost their self-esteem and resolve their identity crisis. Uh, this leads to more confusion and heightened crisis because even if they find self-purpose or self-confidence or self-esteem, they're still looking to themselves for identity instead of God. We will truly know who we are if we know who God is and who God says we are. God is the authority on identity. The first thing that Healthline.com suggests as treatment for identity crisis is looking inward and exploring our own likes and dislikes. Healthline.com suggests this. Ask yourself questions and see if you can answer them over time and if the answers help you figure things out. Remember, you don't have to have all the answers and they may change from year to year or decade to decade. Okay, so let me get this straight. If I'm in identity crisis, and I feel stressed and anxious, I'm supposed to look inside my conflicted and confused self to find answers to questions I'm having difficulty answering and then expect to not find all the answers in myself and to also expect that any answers I might find within myself are likely to change. Now, how does that help me? This is not what confused and conflicted people need to hear. People in identity crisis need God's law and gospel. They need God's perspective on their identity. Now, an increase in self-esteem may help someone function better in this life, but it will not truly resolve identity confusion or crisis because God alone takes us to the core of who we really are. Now, to be fair, Healthline.com does mention church, uh, among other social supports, but understand it does so only after telling someone they are the answer to their own identity crisis. So you can imagine when a self-absorbed person goes to church looking to boost their self-esteem, they will expect the church not to give them God's answers about themselves, but to reinforce their own answers about themselves. And if the church gives them truth instead of applause, they run to something that affirms them just as they are and their identity crisis continues. If you want to truly know yourself, don't begin with yourself. Begin with God and listen to what he thinks of you. Now, in some sense, the church in Galatia was struggling with identity, identity in Christ and identity in relation to fellow 
believers. Their confusion about the law and gospel was creating confusion about their identity, which led to confusion about how they were to live as God's children. Paul was writing to them to give them clarity on the law, the gospel, their identity, and how they should live. Now, some of you may wonder uh, why all this theology from Galatians is important and relevant. Well, we need to know who God really is so that we can know who we really are in relation to Him. Uh, The Bible is God's Word, God's self-revelation, God's perspective, and we need to go to Him first. So here's what I'd like to do. First, remind you of who Jesus Christ is. Second, clarify the true identity of those outside of Christ. Third, clarify the true identity of those inside of Christ. And fourth, explain how our true identity impacts how we live. So a pretty simple outline. First, who is Jesus Christ? Uh, Here's what Galatians says about Jesus Christ up into chapter 4. So let me just rattle it off, uh, but understand that these truths have chapter and verse. Jesus is raised from the dead, is Lord, is the atonement for sin, is the source of grace, is master, is the source of the gospel of God's grace, is the son of God, is true freedom, is the sole object of true faith, is true and perfect righteousness, is the crucified and alive Christ, is a lover who sacrificed himself, is an effectual sacrifice, is the supplier of the Holy Spirit, is the redeemer, is the curse-absorbing crucified substitute for sinners, is the source of true blessing, is the promised offspring of Abraham is the content of true faith, and Jesus is the gospel. Friends, we will be utterly confused about ourselves if we do not know who Christ is and who we are in relation to him. Get God wrong, and you will get yourself wrong. Resolving identity crisis begins with you knowing God as he has revealed himself in scripture. So let me ask you a question. Do you sometimes struggle with who you are, who you really are, then look to Christ. Look to Christ and and look to where you are in relation to him. And this makes it easy because uh, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are outside of Christ and those who are inside of Christ. So you know where you're at, one of two things, one of two things. So you are one of the two. So let's begin with who is outside of Christ? Who is outside of Christ? In Scripture, God describes who is outside of Christ. Those outside of Christ reject Jesus as Scripture presents him and reject God's law and gospel. Uh, their, Their willful denial of the truth of Scripture puts them outside of Christ. Unbelievers are people who assume they are good enough without Christ and sense no pressing need of Christ. Self-righteousness is their confidence and assurance, not Christ's righteousness. Unbelievers are certainly outside the visible church, but hey, they're also inside the visible church. They're just pretending. The important thing to understand about unbelievers is that they are not united to Christ by faith. They are outside of Christ. So if we go back through Galatians and stockpile what Paul explicitly or implicitly says about those outside of Christ, some of which were false teachers and false brothers and sisters in Galatia, here's what we can conclude. So all of this has chapter and verse. 
God is not their father. Jesus Christ is not their Lord. Jesus Christ is not the sacrifice for their sins. They are not delivered from the present evil age. They are deserting God. They believe a false gospel. They want to distort the truth, uh, the true gospel of Christ and trouble the true church. They are accursed. They want to please men and are not slaves of Christ. They are not true brothers and sisters. They are not justified by God. They are servants of sin. They are still under the law and dead in sin. Their beliefs and lifestyle make a statement that Christ died for no purpose. They do not have the Holy Spirit in them. They are not true children of Abraham. They are not blessed along with Abraham. They are under God's curse. They have no redeemer and are not redeemed. None of God's good gospel covenant promises belong to them. They are captives and imprisoned under the law and sin. They are not children of God. They are uncircumcised, spiritually unbaptized, and not clothed in Christ's righteousness. They do not belong to Christ, and they are not heirs according to promise. And that's a frightening reality. Through Scripture, God tells unbelievers exactly who they are. And if, and if unbelievers would just simply listen to God, they would see that their true crisis is not one of identity confusion, but one of being outside of Christ. Being a friend of the world and an enemy of God, as James 4 describes, is their crisis. What was the problem in the Galatian churches? Simple. The churches were confused about God's law and gospel, and therefore confused about themselves and others, and confused about how to live. Theological errors produced an identity crisis, and bad things were happening in the churches. If God says we are outside of Christ, we better listen to how he says we can be inside Christ, and we better get inside Christ fast. Now, we reviewed who Jesus Christ is. We reviewed the identity of people outside of Christ. Now, let's look at the beautiful identity of those who are inside of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this part is for you, and it is really, really good. Listen to this quote from Dr. Philip Ryken. I think it will help you know your true identity. Ryken says this, if you know Jesus Christ then you know who you are because you know to whom you belong. So listen to that again. So good. If you know Jesus Christ, then you know who you are because you know to whom you belong. Beloved, you may struggle with your identity sometimes. You might be all over the place sometimes. And you may sometimes struggle to see yourself as God actually sees you. And you may feel stressed about that. You may feel anxious about that. And it's really easy in that identity struggle to focus on yourself instead of focusing on Christ. The Heidelberg says that our only comfort, the only comfort in life and death is belonging to Christ. It's not good self-esteem. It's not finding yourself. It's not finding your significance in your potential or your career or your sexuality or your family. Identity crisis is resolved and your, your soul finds comfort when you know Jesus Christ and know that you belong to him. Otherwise, you'll seek to find your identity in other things which puts you outside of Christ and outside the promises and blessings of God, which is a miserable existence. 
fellow believers, brothers and sisters, beloved church, this is who you really are. You are united to Christ. Paul said in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul loves that phrase, in Christ. It's such a wonderful phrase. Do you know what it means to be in Christ? It means that you put your faith in Christ alone as your righteousness and salvation and life. And you're joined to him. You are one with him. You are his body. You are his bride. Saints, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That's called oneness and it's yours. The great systematic theologian Louis Burkhoff defined union with Christ like this. That intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. There it is. To be in Christ is to have Christ as the source of your life, your strength, your blessedness, your salvation. Saints, when you struggle with who you really are, remember that you are one with Christ through faith. But you are more. You are God's children. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, understand what was going on in Galatia. Dr. Riken describes it well. Since they were Jews, they had always thought of themselves as God's only children. So they treated Gentile Christians like second-rate members of the family. Until they got circumcised, Gentiles could not be siblings. At most, they were only cousins. End of quote. All right? American, Iranian, or African, those who are in Christ are God's beloved children. There are no second-rate family members. Paul was telling Jews and Gentiles, you are all sons of God through faith, through faith. To be a child of God is to be adopted. Saints, every single one of you in this room that is united to Christ is an adopted child of God. You're adopted. I'm adopted, and it's really awesome. You are God's child, not because you were born into his family, but because he kindly adopted you into his family. Praise God. What was Paul telling the Galatians? He was telling all the believers who they really are. He was showing the drifting Jewish and Gentile believers in Galatia that they were family, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their obedience to the Mosaic law, but because of their common faith in union with Christ alone. Now, similar to other places in the New Testament, the word all in verse 26 specifically refers to all believing Jews and Gentiles in the Galatian churches. All in verse 26 does not refer to every single human being throughout history that ever lived. And it does not refer to that, that make the point that every single person is God's child. That's not what it's saying. The theologically liberal idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man is false. God is creator of all. God is judge of all. God is not the father of all. He is the father of those inside of Christ, as verse 26 clearly teaches. So then, 
common blood or common hometown or common denomination or common set of religious rituals does not put you into the family of God. True saving faith does. Here's one helpful application of verse 26. I think we need to hear it. Racism is evil. Let's not sugarcoat it. We all have racist tendencies. We must repent of racism. It maligns the gospel and it hurts the church. Saints, isn't it awesome to know that Burmese, Chinese, Guianese, Japanese, Lebanese, Maltese, Nepalese, Portuguese, Sudanese, and Vietnamese believers are our closer-than-blood family, our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, simply because they share Christ, a bond like no other bond, the deepest of bonds. We have been adopted into a multicultural family, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes have an identity crisis. Our eyes they drift from Christ onto our sin and our guilt and, and we begin to forget who we really are in Christ which provokes us to act in a way contrary to the gospel. We sin, don't get me wrong, we absolutely do, but sin doesn't suit us. Uh, it's not who we really are. When we sin, we are acting inconsistently with who we really are in Christ. And we must keep coming back to who we really are. We must keep coming back to the law and gospel and allow that to, to throw us to the feet of Jesus, to find who we really are. We must fix our eyes on the person and work of Jesus Christ, for our Father will help us know who we really are and how we are to live for Him. Beloved, you're even more. You are clean and dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Paul said, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, verse 27 is a bit tricky. Uh, first, there is a spiritual baptism which unites a person to Christ. The Holy Spirit washes a person clean of their sin, grants them repentance and faith, and unites them to Christ. It is God alone who washes sinners clean, and yet the outward sacrament of baptism signifies and seals God's washing the sinner clean and united, uh, uniting them to Christ. Paul does not mean that the outward act of water baptism unites someone to Christ. That's not his point. It doesn't. Paul is referring to God's spiritual cleansing which unites sinners to Christ, but no doubt is also referring to water baptism which identified the Galatians with Christ and members of the visible church. Romans 6 is a helpful cross-reference if you want to go deeper in this. Now, there is so much I want to say on verse 27. And I can't. And related passages to this. Folks, verse 27 is an important verse for covenant theology. Uh, and another huge link between circumcision and baptism. 
See, Paul has been arguing against circumcision as the means of justification and as the mark of inclusion in the new covenant church. And now he mentions baptism to remind the Galatians that they all mark, uh, uh, share the mark of union with Christ and inclusion in the new covenant church. But I just don't have time to develop all that. I don't have time to pick it apart. It's not where this message is going. So you're going to have to study that on your own and see what I mean by those connections. So feel free to ask me about that if you want to go there. I'd love to to help you wrestle with the text. But here's what I'll say. Paul is saying, for as many of you Galatians as were actually washed and cleansed and united to Christ by the Spirit and were baptized with water to signify and seal that cleansing and union with Christ have put on Christ. In other words, as many of the Galatians as God had made clean in Christ and had been included in the visible church by water baptism had also put on Christ. See, see, baptism in verse 27 is passive. It's not active. It's passive. Baptism happened to them. Baptism represents what God has done for us in Christ, not what we have done for God. Only those whom God has truly washed and cleansed spiritually are in Christ and therefore put on Christ. Those only baptized outwardly are not in Christ and therefore do not put on Christ. They just have an outward thing. You've got to have the inward spiritual baptism. It is those united to Christ by faith alone who wear Christ's beautiful robes of righteousness. By the Spirit, those inside of Christ wear the life of Christ as their garment. They wake up in the morning and they get dressed in Christ. They put on his beauty, his righteousness, his holiness, his kindness, his gentleness, his truth, his love. They put on and they wear Christ. Now you need to get this. Our identity in Christ leads us to live as Christ. John Calvin put it like this. He employs the metaphor of a garment when he says that the Galatians have put on Christ. But he means that they are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. They're viewed in Christ rather than in themselves. To to put on Christ is to wear the t-shirt that says, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You wear him. You wear his character. You wear his name. He defines you. In Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says plainly, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To wear Christ is to not pursue your carnal desires, but to pursue Christ's desires. When you struggle with who you really are, As my dear mother told me many times, remember whose you are. That's right, amen. Remember, remember whose you are. Allow Christ to clear up your identity confusion and crisis. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Beloved, you are clean and you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ and you look beautiful. 
beautiful. You are more. You are united to each other. Our family bond transcends blood because our family bond is Christ who shed his blood. Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 28 has been misused to make several unbiblical arguments. This is a popularly misused verse to pluck out of its context and make it say something that it does not say. One example and I know this is sensitive among Christians, so know that my pastoral heart is sensitive here, is egalitarianism or women's ordination. But see, Paul is not talking about roles in the family nor roles in the church, which he establishes other places quite clearly. He's talking about union with Christ. The distinction between male and female still stands as do the roles God has assigned men and women in the family and in the church. And Paul is saying that when it comes to salvation, being a man or woman gains you nothing. Men and women alike are justified by faith alone and are children of God. Neither gets preference. A beautiful truth. Shockingly, verse 28 is also misused to promote transgenderism. We can't take this one verse and pluck it from its context and make it say whatever we want it to say. What does God intend, verse 28, to say in the context of the whole book of Galatians and in the context of all of Scripture? Paul is obviously not arguing away gender distinctions. Paul is arguing that when it comes to justification, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to union with Christ, when it comes to the church, ethnicity, social status, and gender, they're all equal. Jews have no advantage over Gentiles. Masters have no advantages over slaves. Men have no advantages over women. All believers are one in Christ. To use verse 28 to argue for transgenderism would be to completely miss Paul's point and to read a contemporary sexual ethic into the text. God doesn't like that when we read our stuff into his text, which he meant to speak so clearly on these issues. We must receive the meaning of the text as God intends it. Nowhere in Scripture does God argue away the gender distinctions that he beautifully created for his glory, both. To use verse 28 to defend transgenderism is to flagrantly misquote God. When it comes to salvation in Christ, ethnicity, social status, or the male and female gender make no difference. The Jew is saved by faith alone. The Gentile is saved by faith alone. The slave is saved by faith alone. The master is saved by faith alone. The man is saved by faith alone. The woman is saved by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. And you are one with Christ and one with each other, regardless of those other things that still remain significant distinctions. Our Father loves us the same because of our oneness with His Son, Jesus Christ. Segregation in America and the ongoing racial divide that we feel maligns the gospel. There is no white evangelical church or black church or Chinese church. There is only the church. Verse 28 kills racism. 
Male chauvinism and radical feminism and the tension that we still feel there maligns the gospel. Women have been belittled. Men have been disrespected. Watch sitcoms. Chauvinism and feminism are in the church as well. And verse 28 kills male chauvinism and kills radical feminism. In the church, it's easy to show preference to the wealthy, to idolize youth and beauty, to gravitate towards certain personalities, and perhaps these problems exist in the church because we have yet to understand that as God's children, we are all one in Christ. We are united to one another. We are inseparable family. The glory of the church is that rich or poor, young or old, gorgeous or ordinary, outgoing or shy, Christ ties us together in himself. And dear saints, you are more. You are Christ's. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Saints, you belong to Christ. You are his. He has purchased you from the slave market of sin and guilt and has made you his own. Brothers and sisters, you are Christ's. You're more because you belong to Christ. You are Abraham's offspring. You are the spiritual offspring promised to Abraham. Do you realize that? You are true Israel. You are true Jews. You are the true circumcision. Remember the promises were made to Abraham and to Christ, his offspring. So if you are in Christ, you are truly Abraham's offspring. And God's promises are for you because you are in Christ. All the awesome promises, they're yours. You get them. You see, the Jews in Galatia took pride in as physical offspring of Abraham. Not helpful to the church. Not helpful at all. In verse 29, Paul is saying that even Gentiles are true offspring of Abraham simply by belonging to Christ. So Paul is stripping the Jews of any privilege in their ethnicity and leveling the playing field where Jew and Gentile together are true offspring of Abraham. Abraham. Faith is the common denominator, not ethnicity. Saints, you are more. (laughs) You are heirs according to promise. You have an incredible inheritance waiting for you because God has given it to you and guaranteed it for you with his Holy Spirit as a gift. The inheritance is rightfully yours. You should have it because of who Christ is. But you have to understand who the heir is. The heir is Christ. It's Christ. So if you are outside of Christ, hear it loud and clear, you are not an heir. You are not an heir with him. If you are inside Christ, if you are united to him, dear one, You are fellow heirs of Christ, with Christ. So, beloved child of God, you and I are heirs with Christ because of our union with Christ. Jesus has rightly inherited all things from the Father, and he shares them with us, his adopted and spirit-filled brothers and sisters. 
He's really giving. I'm so glad that he is because we get what is rightfully his. He shares it with us. No one is an heir because of natural birth or because they were better or because they observed the law or because they're worthy or because they chose to be an heir. No, no. Heirs are heirs according to God's promise, according to God's sovereign grace. Beloved, when you struggle with your identity, look to Christ, the heir. Look to Christ the heir and be reminded that he has made you an heir with him because of God's gracious promise. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All the kingdom is yours. Coming from Jesus, that that promise is really helpful uh, so that we know who we really are. I've reminded you of who Jesus Christ is. I've clarified the true identity of those outside of Christ and of those inside of Christ. The last thing is for us to realize that our true identity shapes how we live. Your true identity determines how you live. Now, we we all struggle with identity confusion and crisis to some extent, and when we do, we must go quickly to God's word uh, to better understand who we really are. If, If you're confused... And, and conflicted over who you really are, you won't really know how to live. You just won't know where you fit and what you're supposed to do. You'll be all over the place. You'll be insecure, you'll be anxious, you'll be timid, you'll be restless. So know who you really are so that you know how to live, so that you know what's fitting of you. Those outside of Christ are lost, confused, condemned, and they act like it. Their identity determines how they live. They don't want to hear about God. They don't want to hear about who he considers them to be. They want to be what they want to be. They want to be what they consider themselves to be, and then they live like what they think themselves to be and what they are. In Romans 1, Paul described exactly what this looks like. This is so practical. This is what Paul said. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Every day, People show you who they really are by their worldview, principles, values, and choices. Those outside of Christ do not genuinely acknowledge God, and because they don't acknowledge God, they do what ought not to be done. Their lives are categorized by sinning against God. You will know them by their fruits. But for God's children... Their worldview, principles, values, and choices are very, very, very different. Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 through 17, which I read earlier, put on then as God's chosen ones. That's who you are. 
Saints, you're chosen. You're holy and beloved. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, do everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. No, God's children do not always live like it. Guilty. I just live so many times inconsistently with who I really am. And people see it and it hurts people. We don't always live like who we are. We, we sin. We, we act like the world sometimes. And it's really painful for everybody to see that. But here's the difference. That's not who you really are. That's not who you really are. Your sin does not define you. You are dead. Christ defines you. Christ is your life. And God is working to conform us to Christ. Absolutely. We're, we're growing every day into who we really are in Christ. He is conforming us. He is making us that we are not now what we will be then when the work is done and He has completed it. So, you know, deep down, God's children have a passion for putting on Christ, and you absolutely can see it. I mean, I think sometimes in our Christian language, we make it seem like, well, we're just sinners like everybody else. It all looks the same. Our life, you'll hear this in, in studies uh, being done that the world's this or that is exactly like in the church, this or that. And I just wonder about those statistics. You see, there is a difference. There is a palpable difference. That person is totally, lives totally different than that person. And, and the reason why? They acknowledge God. The law and the gospel, they know Christ. They're different. Not perfect. Nobody ever said that. We still need the gospel. If you're a Christian, you understand that. Sometimes we forget who we are. So brothers and sisters, remember this. If you know Jesus Christ, then you know who you are because you know to whom you belong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is the means by which we are adopted into your glorious family. If we look to Christ and we know him as he is revealed in scripture, then we know exactly who we are. All these beautiful and wonderful things. We are children of God. And so God, I pray that we act like it. That we would take your law and gospel very seriously. Take your word very seriously as children who love you, who love their father, who want to hear what their father has to say. That we love preaching, love public reading of scripture, love private devotion time in your word. God, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that you help us know how to live because of who we are in Christ. 
And God, help us to love one another, to recognize our union with each other as well. And that common bond, it's, it's not that we like sports or art or we're musicians. None of those things really matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters is that we are one in Christ. He is our bond. He is our covenant. He, he, he is the one that gives us value and meaning and purpose. So help us to know him and then to know who we are in relation to him. God, I pray that if there is someone here that is outside of Christ, that you would speak to them clearly about the terrifying situation that they're in and help them to run to Jesus and find themselves loved through faith. That you would give them repentance and faith and that you would bring them to Jesus and that they would count themselves in the family of God. May it be so, God, for your glory. Grow the family of God. Grow your church. Christ said, I will build my church. And so we trust you, Jesus, to use the proclamation of your word to bring people into the family of God, to adopt them. God, please, build up your saints too, God. May your family know that they are brothers and sisters, know that they are children of the king, and may that be the most precious thing to them and then help them to want more than anything else to live like it. Help us to live like who we really are. In Jesus' name, amen.